there's, there's a park that still exists today in Denver uh, that hosted like the national championships in the 1930s. I ride my bike and walk, I like walk and drive my car by it every day. There's myriad of people in Denver. There's people that fly fish in Denver that, ha and I, I, after reading that book, I was like, oh my God, I could go and cast a rod in the same part of the place that like, you know, Goodwin Granger cast a rod. That's pretty cool to me. That was Ross White dropping a little fly fishing history on us today. Bamboo, bags, and DLD today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? If you want to head over to our local fly shop and see who we have listed today, uh, that's wetflyswing.com slash fly shop. And you can find out and support a great local shop before you get started. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsors. The Fly Fishing Film Tour is back. It's back, baby. Don't miss this year's 2022 F3T as it returns to theaters near you for another season on the water. Full of lots of super, super action, rod-bending action, for a matter of fact. Unforgettable storytelling, uh, lots of stuff here this year, including a big chunk on conservation partners. And as always, F3T is the show to hit up this year. Please head over to wetflyswing.com slash F3T to find a show near you. That's wetflyswing.com slash F3T. We are also uh, presented today by Deddy Flies. Established in 1928, Deddy Flies is the oldest family-run fly shop in the country, now in their 94th year. 94th, almost 100 years. That is amazing. Deddy has always had the same mission, serving the fly fishing community with the finest products and services. Every fly they sell is either tied in-house or by a handful of select tires. Please head over right now to wetflyswing.com slash deddy to grab your flies now. That's wetflyswing.com slash deddy. D-E-T-T-E. -T -T -E. You support this podcast and deddy by clicking through that link right now. Ross White from Deli Fresh Design takes us to the history, the history road. We're, we're going on a history trip today. This is like, uh, this is not your history lesson like back in class, the boring history lesson. This is fly fishing history. Ross has a passion for it. And today he digs into, uh, digs into that passion. I call him out a couple times. I call him out on his bamboo podcast, which I want to see him get into. And uh, but man, all sorts of good stuff in this one. It's kind of a catch up episode. Bamboo. Uh, we talk about packs, some of the stuff he has going, how he has the recycled Sims uh, waders as part of his basically his material line. But uh, we're all over. This is one of those random ones that's all over the place. Hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, here is Ross White. Let's do this. How's it going, Ross? It's going well. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for uh, circling back around here. We, uh, we've. I'm looking back on episode 79, and we're uh, was when you were on last, and that was oh, over uh, a few years. Right? We're almost up to 300 episodes now, so it's been a while. What have you been up to for the last uh, 220 episodes? Yeah, I was going to say, I feel honored that I was in uh, in uh, two, er, double digits instead of yeah. digits. <laughs> so um, yeah, I'm I'm honored. Uh, I don't know, a lot's happened. Uh, <laughs> sort of, uh, you know. In some ways, the last two years feel like nothing's happened, and and that amazingly everything's happened. But 
Um, I'm still still living in Denver, and um, luckily this uh, past summer I I was able to go out to the Catskills again. I, I was out there in 2019. Um, depending on when we last talked, I, it might have uh-huh. been before or after. I'm not sure, but um, but yeah, I've been um, still working on bags, still sort of evolving the products, and uh, uh, still making them one at a time myself, and uh, planning to sort of you know as we go forward, kind of make things in batches and. Uh, and then, you know, limited release batches. So if, um, you know, people are interested in the bank, then you can always reach out. And the more people reach out about a particular item, the probably the more likely I'm going to make it, uh, opposed to something that, uh, you know, not a lot of people are uh, reaching out about. So, um, you know, that's, that's where I'm at. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, sort of, uh, deep diving more into the uh, vintage fly fishing tackle, not just reels and rods. Oh yeah. All the, uh, that's right. And, um, things like that, that I can, uh, potentially see as ways I can incorporate into my own product. Yeah. And, and that's all the, and we're going to dig into that a little bit on the vintage stuff and the bamboo stuff. We recently had a classic fly fishing episode with a guy who deals uh, with all classic gear. And, uh, he talked a little bit about classic and vintage and some of that, you know, it sounds like you can actually get your hands on that episode, you know, for under a thousand bucks, pretty far under a thousand, you get a pretty nice uh, rod and reel bamboo setup out there. Vintage yeah. or well, I guess more classic. Yeah, who are you? Who did you speak with? Uh, that was, I think it was classic uh, fly tackle. It was a Ward Tonsfeld. Okay, uh, I'm sure I've been to his website, but um, like the biggest misconception I think that people find, uh, regardless of rods, uh, is that I think that uh, in terms of accessibility, or, or people hear like, oh, you know, two thousand, three thousand dollars for a fly rod. Yeah, um, and I think that what probably drives the market in terms of maybe the uh, overall idea of like you know uh, finding a rod in terms of vintage stuff and and trying to get something under a thousand dollars is um is char is a little bit of a hard thing to do is because of the fact that um you sort of like if you make the analogy that uh, like a hork sinibitzin or a south bend or uh, a montague um yeah. 100 years ago those rods were you know they were the equivalent of a $150 echo rod. And, but you know, a hundred years ago, the best material for making a rod was bamboo. Yeah. And, and so I think that people don't realize that, you know, they were never considered the best. They were considered affordable, uh, much the same way that, um, an echo is today. I mean, there are some very nice made echo rods. Um, they're a little bit, a little bit more expensive. Um, uh, but for your money, hard to beat an echo base, uh, and in the same way that an echo base cost $150, um, you know, a hundred years ago, if you adjust for inflation, I mean, a, a, a Montague base rod was a dollar 50. And if you adjust <laughs> for inflation, it's about the same. That's funny. Yeah. Buck 50. I think that the, like, if people, if you do that kind of inflation calculation, I think the one thing that has changed is that, uh, if you want to do it in the U S then the, the, the cost of labor is what, what are you paying for? Oh, right. You know, it costs more money to pay for someone to make a bag in the U.S. than it does in China or a rod. Or a rod. And I love it. And that's what with you, you know, you, you're running the ship over there at uh, Deli Fresh Design and you make some bags that are, like you say, you know, they're, they're kind of like a, almost like a throwback to a little vintage style, a little newer vintage. Maybe describe that again. So somebody who did, wasn't listening back in 79, describe uh, what you have going at Deli Fresh Design. What, what, your, uh, what is your superpower over there? What do you do? Um, well, the one thing that we do that we probably weren't doing uh, back at 79 is that we uh, pretty much exclusively only make 
uh, the bulk of our bags in terms of actual, you know, percentage of materials that go into the bags uh, today out of recycled materials. Oh, nice. Or repurposed materials. So, you know, I would say about 80% of a bag is going to be entirely repurposed and recycled materials. Uh, and that's predominantly using um, uh, Sims waiters. So we uh, partner with Sims as well as some fly shops uh, who donate waiters to us. Uh, in, in order to, uh, you know, keep that waiter waste out of the, the overall chain and out of, out of uh, landfills. So we do that with them. Uh, and then the other thing we do for a lot of the liners of our bags um, is use sailcloth. Uh, and then we also do rock climbing rope uh, or oh, yeah. a, uh, like retired uh, rope for uh, bags. But, um, you know, I'm always evolving the ideas that I have in my head in terms of bags. But uh, one thing that I have been doing lately is sort of seeing, you know, not making things in a vacuum, but also trying to make everything, uh, looking back to what people were doing and finding answers and finding vintage bags that uh, uh, might inspire me um, or give me ideas on how to make something today opposed to maybe 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 100 years ago. Um, there are all ways I can uh, improve upon the designs and uh, sort of take a step back into the fly fishing history, which is a rich history, and then kind of evolve from there. Um, but oftentimes, there, you know, the ways in which uh, fly fishermen have been, uh, you know, been fished today opposed to 100 years ago is very different. Uh, you know, one challenge is that 100 years ago, we probably were only carrying one or two bo fly boxes. Um, or, you know, half a dozen flies or, you know, the cost of a, a single hook was much more expensive. Um, and so uh, today, you know, we carry several, several, either from one to, you know, up to a dozen or two dozen fly boxes at any given moment. So how do you take a simple, very simple bag that was made for, for you know, a salmon fisherman with one box and uh, predominantly was using that bag to, to take his, his uh, catch home? Uh, so those those questions or those um, you know storage uh, challenges are, are are different, but sort of seeing how we can do that or where do I need uh, my fly boxes uh, to be accessible? Is it in a backpack? Uh, where does my net need to be? Um, do I always need a net? Um, those kind of challenges. Um, you know, where do I hang my nippers, my hemostats, my tippet? All things that you might have had one school, uh, you know, in a different uh, era. You might you might have been using gut leaders. Uh, you might have been using silk gut leaders. Who knows? Uh, you could have been using one spool of, you know, three X. Right. So, what were they using back then for bags? Like back, say, I mean, you had the creel, but that's not what we're talking about, right? You're, you're um, talking about. Well, it's interesting. So, I think that. Um, so people have this idea, and I, it was sort of posed recently uh, on the Orvis po Fly Fishing podcast that uh, the idea of a vest is sort of so old school, and it's it's something that is a mid-century design. Um, and I think uh, at some point or another, Lee Wolf either uh, created the, what we know as the uh, the modern uh, vest or popularized the vest. Uh, you know, he, he was in some way or form. Uh, helped uh, propel the, uh, the the vest to the forefront, and what in terms of what people from maybe the fifties to to now considered a bag, um, or, or the like, you know, the required uh, tackle for being on a river. But prior to that, and uh, if you look back in catalogs and and articles and advertisements, um, 
you know, people were more exclusively using uh, something like a Creole. Uh, either it was a Creole to hold, the, you know, maybe uh, just their catch. And maybe there are some examples that I've seen that have leather pouches for holding, you know, that fly box, that one fly box that you need. And you might keep your, you know, your extra gut leader in a pocket uh, or two. And that's all you had. You might have used your pocket knife to cut off the, uh, the fly and put, tie in another yeah. one. Uh, it's pretty simple. Um, but, um, so, I mean, from that sort of Creole and then you would, you'll see that like, um, and oftentimes you'll see it, uh, Hardy goes through phases where they'll make some bags and other people will make bags, uh, not unlike like a Duluth pack where it's, uh, you know, tan canvas and leather. Uh, so out of the Creole that, you know, it might have a couple of front pockets and then a major, uh, pocket called a bladder for holding your catch, um, and that kind of thing. And, um, and so those kind of things were evolving into, you know, multiple fold out pockets and, uh, bigger things. So I can keep more, you know, like I can fold out the bag, you know, fold the bag down from like a computer sized bag out to like, you know, a 30 inch or 40 inch salmon, that kind of thing. Um, and then those kind of evolved, uh, and then eventually because of the popularization of the, the vest, those kind of faded out. Um, I think Hardy over the years has gone through phases where they've stopped and then started making uh, bags uh, in that vein. Um, and they've become, they've always been kind of considered popular in terms of collecting and uh, in terms of vintage, uh, you know, collectibles. And then, um, but then it's interesting too now. So um, sort of the, in the last 10 years, I would say that the vest is sort of, uh, if you want to say we've de-evolved or we've evolved uh, in using bags again yeah we're back to bags are, are vests now tell me this ross are are vests like are totally out i mean does anybody wear a vest anymore and and talk about colorado because you guys are like the trout hub one of the trout hubs of the country is anybody wearing a vest out there um you know i don't see that many people wearing vests in colorado anymore but i was so like on the east coast uh in the summer and there's more sort of in the vein of like traditional catskill uh fishermen uh people do wear um the vests and um, and one thing I did do this summer it was a collaboration with Daddy Flies, which is uh, the oldest fly shop in America. And um, I did uh, collaborate with them on a sort of classic inspired uh, vest uh, that we did uh, for them. And uh, it's it's something that is sort of a simple pared down vest. And you might uh, see it and say, oh, that looks like this company stuff. But but uh, overall it was, a, you know, something that we d- decided to do together as a collaboration. What's that vest called again? What was that? The Delaware? Uh, no, that's the uh, the that's the um. It was a strap vest we did exclusively through uh, Daddy Flies. So if you oh, okay. didn't gotcha. taking a look at that, you could go to their website at daddyflies.com. Yeah. Um, and then uh, in terms of my own products, though, I, I tend to design them a little a little bit more around the uh, the sort of the more contemporary uh, stuff, but also uh, sort of thinking in ways. Oftentimes, too, uh, sort of what I saw as a, an opportunity or a niche to fulfill when I started the company was uh, how do I make something more simple uh, or pared down so I can spend more time fishing? Uh, and that's sort of something that always kind of goes rings true. It's like, well, I, I don't like all this busy stuff or, or well, what if I get rid of this so that I can only have this? And does that make it easier or does it make it harder? Um, uh, so in w- whenever I'm making a product, I'm going out on the river and it's like, do I like this? Don't I like this? Does it solve the problem I want it to solve? Yes. No, it's too cumbersome. I carry too much. It's heavy. 
those are all things that eventually add up to, you know, kind of evolving the product forward. Um, and obviously when I started the company, I sort of had to like start from scratch where it's like, um, you know, there's a bag that I like, but it's, you know, also too complicated for my, my sewing skills at this moment. And then, you know, four or five years later of coming back, uh, you know, regularly sewing and making bags. I've, I've evolved stuff that I, that, and can, it, it can improve upon, uh, other previous ideas that I've had. So you have a sling pack, right? Talk about just, uh, quickly about your bags. Cause, and, and what do you wear? Like if you're going trout fishing, what are you wearing? Well, predominantly it depends. Um, so if I'm going, uh, and I'll, I'll say that I like, you know, I've been for like the, for dry fly fishing on the East coast, I, I, you know, was wearing a bag that I w I've been making uh, for a while, which is the Never Sink uh, chest pack. Um, I find that I, I like having usually someone who likes a lot of tippet, so I like having it in the front. It's accessible. I don't have to move something back to forward. Um, you know, everything's kind of where I need it to be. The one I've been using is something that I've been kind of like uh, slowly uh, germinating into potentially uh, evolving towards in terms of the actual uh, sort of like a prototype that I I've been sort of thinking about uh, uh, in terms of like uh, slightly different from what you see in the current iteration of the Delaware uh, or, or the, the Delaware and the, and the, uh, the beaver or never sink on the website. Um, but uh, essentially it's um, a chest pack uh, that has a net sleeve on the back uh, or a D ring. Uh, so you can keep a long handled net or a short handled net uh right where you need it and then on the front you have one major pocket for um for boxes buy boxes and then the front you have a uh, drop down sort of platform or like a sort of like a station where you can work uh while you're on the river for for getting your tippet uh or your you know your extra flies that are they're switching out flies um and then you also have the uh, ability to like uh store you know like uh extra leaders and uh like indicators and is that bag made out of is all the bags on your website are they all made out of sims waders or the the nets for the most part i mean i like i said i think we um so some of the times we uh will work with other or like we'll get donations from other people so i i, I oh, obviously yeah. would happy to take that stuff and uh the cool thing is is that so you know for certain products, um, you know, I, I one of the things that I do, and I very selectively will choose certain parts of a pair of waders. Uh, so, like the uh, so like the like you know, pretty much the legs from like the the knee down are going to be very stiff and durable. Uh, and then, so for certain parts of a bag, that's going to be more beneficial. Uh, and then, in terms of the way of like a Sims pair of waders is articulated, there might only be so much I can use for this particular bag style. Uh, opposed to the, the upper part or this model of Sims waders uh, has only a certain amount of like, uh, you know, lightweight material that is better for like maybe the top zippered part opposed to the bottom, which is going to see more wear. Uh, so that's kind of how I use that. And then so like um, sometimes I've I've in the past I've made like a protective sleeves for like the cover, like a, a, a nice rod tube or like your standard four piece nine foot rod tube uh, that you want to take through an airport but doesn't, you don't want to like necessarily, you know, uh, carry around an aluminum tube that's going to slide out of this or that or get banged and you don't want to uh, harm it, but you want to take it through an airport um, when there isn't a pandemic. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but that kind of thing. So those kind of things, it's like, oh, it's, it's really just a lightweight thing that goes over this, but it doesn't necessarily need oh, to yeah. 
durable and thick. Um, so those are all considerations that I take into take in when I'm I'm making a bag, or it even is like um you know I want to have this sort of form of rigidity so that there's structure in like a chest pack or say the beaver kill pack, uh, which is sort of our considered our fanny pack. So it's like you know is it do I want it to be super bulky or or a little bit lightweight so it's more versatile so that uh you, you if you wanted to use it for like you know a travel multi purpose kind of bag where you're going on like a you know, a fishing trip to Belize, but you also want a fanny pack for kind of walking around with your camera on like that, off, that one off day or that evening, you have a bag that uh, is versatile and can be used for multiple things. So I, I take all those things into consideration. Um, we do sometimes like on certain bigger bags uh, or like where it makes sense. Uh, we do, I do tend to use like a ripstop uh, or like a virgin or new ripstop, uh, sort of for like bigger things like big backpacks, uh, yeah. uh, where like it needs to be lighter or like, uh, or, um, but, uh, overall pretty much everything, uh, has a liner of sailcloth. And then obviously to using up existing inventory of materials where like, I've, you know, I've, I've bought, uh, ripstop, but I want to keep using it because I don't want to like wait or sit on it, or I don't want to discard it. I, I'd like to keep using it. Um, mm -hmm. moving forward or like, you know, I'd say that majority of our bags are exclusively all of the bags, uh, or core fly fishing bags, um, with the exceptions of maybe the backpack sometimes, uh, like, uh, or like even all of the internal pockets on the backpack, uh, might be lined with ripstop, but the, the internal pack or pockets are going to be made out of sailcloth. Um, and the other thing that I like doing and, and I think is important to do is tell the story of the, uh, the material that I'm using. So. Um, I try to highlight existing seams on a pair of waders. Ironically, the uh, probably the most um, you know the coolest, the, sort of the most interesting sort of seam is the like the, right at the crotch, where like there is a lot of material coming together, and uh, it, it is kind of fun to use that because it, it, it shows the story. How, how do you use that? What products are you using that on? Um, it depends. Sometimes it's like a, like a side panel or like the, like the side panel flaps for the straps or like there's like a padded, um, uh, some padded pad or, uh, there's, um, padded, uh, like strap or straps and then padded side panels for the, uh, like the, uh, the never sink pack. And I might okay. want to highlight, you know, in a cool way that like someone can be like, Oh, well, that's so cool. Like that's an original scene. Um, or I have those waiters, so I know exactly where that is on my waiters. Yeah. Um, those things I like to do. And then like it, what made me think about it is that, um, uh, especially on like the sailcloth, uh, with those packs, um, or like if I'm going to do a pocket on the inside of your backpack, I don't want to just be like a flat piece of, uh, sailcloth. I mean, sometimes it does end up being that way, but typically on every pack or accessory or whether it's a fly wallet or a beer koozie, or a backpack and uh, like a sail or, you know, one of our, our fishing bags, like the beaver kill or the never sink. I try to, at least on sometimes like with, they all have like internal pockets. So a lot of times the way sails are made, uh, you'll see like a uh, zigzag stitches and that's sort of how the, like the actual um, sail was made. So uh, you, if you think about a ship, um, you know, it could be like a 50 to a hundred foot long sail. Um, but fabrics only, uh, the, like the fabric we, uh, or that's used for sales only comes in maybe 60 inches in a width. Uh, so how do you, how do you make a hundred foot long sail, uh, or that a sail that needs to be, you know, 50 feet wide by a hundred feet long. Uh, and so a lot of those times those sails are put together or almost always put together with zigzag stitches. 
And so I try to incorporate those in the pockets or in unique ways so that when someone opens one of our bags, they're like, oh my God, that's so cool. There's an original zigzag seam from a ship sale. And, and you know, it's like, not only has, you know, like the outer part of the, the uh, one of our bags been used to, um, you know, help someone, or not only is it made out of a waiter where someone was actually fishing in it, um, but then if you look on the inside of a bag and see one of the original zip, zigzag stitches, you can say, I wonder where in the world uh, that piece of material has been or, you know, that propelled someone across the world or, you know, that's right in Cancun or in the Gulf of Mexico or something like that. Today's show is presented by Stonefly Nets. Stonefly Nets starts their design process by selecting wood and handle based on a number of factors. This is a custom project, a custom operation, and you can actually see, you can track some of this. We're doing a little a little giveaway for one of these nets that you could track right now. Uh, if you go to uh, wetflyswing.com slash giveaway and check that out right now. Uh, Ethan has been producing some great stuff there. He's been doing some cool partnerships over the last year. For Ethan, he always draws it back to his family like a lot of us do, and he remembers kind of that bamboo rod from his grandmother and, you know, that three weight and, and the feeling that he got, you know, when he kind of cast it and had that that in his hand. Same thing for this net. When I grab uh, my stonefly net, I know I'm going to always have this thing. I'm going to be passing it down for my kids for generations, and it's not just some tool. It's more than that. This is a unique custom net. So support Stonefly, a great company and a great net at wetflyswing.com slash stonefly, and you can get your custom net. Check out the process right now. wetflyswing.com slash stonefly, S-T-O-N-E-F-L-Y. You support this podcast by checking out and clicking through that link right now. Okay, let's get back to the show. And you're still sewing all these things, right? All these yep. bags. How like uh, how many bags are you sewing? Do you, do you just sit down and, and just do? I mean, how many do you do a day? Is this is this all? This is kind of all you. Um. Well, it's it's currently all me, and I, and overall, I feel like eventually I would see it being the kind of thing where it uh, potentially having it be a, still an in-house business where I, I have a couple of other people helping me to sew. Um, but, um, overall, like, you know, I'd like to keep it in house and it's a way to like, you know, keep, uh, our costs down and then our supply chain short. Um, obviously like now in a pandemic, uh, you know, a lot of times, uh, if you look on someone's website, you might say, why is this, why is this, um, uh, you know, sold out or I can't get it for another six months. It's because, uh, there's either a material shortage or a supply chain issue yeah. or, Things are, you know, there's things that are aren't available because, uh, you know, the borders are hard to get things through. Like recently, I just this week, I tried to uh, send out an order to someone uh, in Australia and it hadn't occurred to me, but I was trying to use uh, the USPS and, and the USPS has suspended all shipments to Australia. Oh, really? And I was like, oh, I don't I didn't know that. And then so I had to, I had to ship it, ship it to them UPS. And UPS would cost you about three hundred bucks, right? Well, it was it was like uh, not quite that much, but it was still expensive. But um, you know, luckily uh, the uh, end customer was willing to, you know, was willing to wait and let me, you know, ship it for an extra cost. And uh, you know, yeah. eventually, I just like you know, it's it's not worth worth charging, you know, upcharging them for the shipping. I'd rather just get it to them. They're they're already willing to pay, you know, a lot in shipping, and and they've been patient, so I might as well just get it to them. 
That's pretty cool. So how do you track down? I was just going to ask you about that. You know, your customers, how did you find, you know, uh, a person in Australia and then, and then who is your target customer for the most part? Who's buying your stuff? Well, I was going to say, I mean, it's sort of what we we're sort of hinting at it before about like uh, supply chain issues and stuff like that is a, a strong case for someone uh, to maybe, you know, if you're like, well, if I can't get that brand new reel, then maybe I could, uh, you know, dive into getting, uh, you know, maybe a, a vintage reel or something that's already in existence. Exactly. Uh, checking that out. Or, you know, I've thought about buying a used carbon fiber rod, but, and I've bought them, but maybe I can, you know, I've always wanted a bamboo rod or a vintage fiberglass rod. That sounds interesting to me. So I can, you know, that's something if you're tired of waiting, then you could potentially go on that route. Um, but I would say a lot of our customers are people that are, uh, um, you know, understand what we're doing in terms of the story and the, they like the recycled materials. Uh, they put a, uh, they understand the premium of uh, something that's, you know, uh, like a, on some ways, uh, you know, we make them in batches. Like most of the time, the batch we, um, like I said earlier, I've, I've sort of gone to the point where I will make stuff in batches uh, and then, uh, allow people to, you know, like based on what people want. Um, so that's kind of how we find our customers and, and things like that. But a lot of it's on Instagram and then word of mouth. And, um, I was on the East coast and, and, uh, for the summer and, and, you know, people see our stuff with daddy and, and, uh, I meet people on the river. Um, the one thing I haven't done in the last couple of years is, uh, is done the fly shows and, uh, but, um, but you know, sometimes that's a way in which we can get people interested or uh, show people our product. Um, but a lot of times, I think it's it's a uh, you know, how do we uh, show people our product through Instagram, or you know, how do we how do we tell the story that that I've just told you? So, yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, no, it's cool. It's a cool story. I mean, it's amazing to me. So I used to. I think I I met you through uh, Elliot Adler, who who oh yeah was the uh, the Drake cast from time to time, and and then uh, yep. Um, and I can't tell you the number of times you know we advertised probably three or four years ago, and then uh, through his podcast, and we haven't advertised with his podcast in three or four years, and it's amazing. Sometimes I'll I'll read comments, people will buy our product, they're like, hey, I listened to the. You know, it's like, oh, I just listened to the Drake cast that came out five years ago, or I yeah. just listened to Wet Fly Swing, and how are, or are the people will meet me, and I'm like, oh, I remember, or like, yeah, I heard about that, you know, that that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it works, it works. It's in the, it's similar on the podcast. The podcast is the same way, man. It's been total word of mouth for the whole, you know, basically the whole thing. And I, yeah, I mean, I, we just heard, I hear the same thing. I heard from somebody the other day that just listened to the back catalog and he said, yeah, man, I just, I just made a purchase from, you know, 2018 or whatever it was. So it, it oh, nice. yeah, so it definitely, um, you know, it's, it's not your hockey stick growth, right? It, it's not like you're putting no. in a, but it still, it still works. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that is a benefit is, uh, you know, I mean, I do have a full-time job, so in in some ways, the uh, the benefit of that is that during the pandemic, you know, I I was able to you know absorb uh, some of the cost of that because I I wasn't relying on DFD for money, uh, and so I can um, allow the company to continue in its current form. Uh, uh, but I wasn't, you know, we just, you know, it wasn't just abruptly. To- like a complete dead stop which is what happened you know not just in the fly fishing world but other places too where all of a sudden people don't have jobs and and companies have to fold because they they don't know what to do or they're you know they were uh you know their money dried up and they were only running on you know 
three months of lead time and uh, right. through the pandemic, everything's dried up. Um, and I think companies uh, now too, with like, you know, people, like I said, with supply chain issues, I think it's an ever evolving problem and people are struggling. Yeah. And it's probably not going to get, uh, well, it seems like this sort of stuff is going to continue on. Right. I mean, this is not going to be the only time. Yeah. I think it's also like, um, like kind of, uh, like poked holes in the, like the, the consumerism of everything and made people mm-hmm. realize like, you know, we are living on borrowed time in terms of environmental issues and, I mean, I think in some ways too, like if, if someone in the fly fishing world is like, um, you know, I'm waiting for that, you know, that new pair of waders, but I can't find it. But also like, you know, I'm also interested in a new rod or a new reel. You know, there's there's ways in which you can uh, scratch that itch or provide some joy from buying vintage stuff. Hey, I got a question for you, uh, Ross. This is on, uh, I got drilled a while, where, where was it? It was probably a month ago by, you know, I never get into politics much here, but I said something, I guess that was a little, you know, a, sub, a podcast I listened to. But I watched a movie recently. Have you seen that movie, Don't Look Up? I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Well, I watched it and it's kind of on a similar, you know, it's obviously not about the pandemic, but it's just a play on the fact that, you know, I mean, just kind of politics, right? And the, and the world and the that's happening out there right and, and like we got to kind of be aware and i mean i think that's kind of where you're coming from though i mean you, you're hardcore on this right you, you're making the point you're right along with patagonia maybe i mean what how do you see that with like patagonia with what they're doing and with what you do do you just see you kind of a very similar thing just a a much bigger company or, or how does that look to you well i don't know patagonia is you know they may have changed it a couple of years ago their um sort of like their slow company slogan is was uh we're in the business of saving the planet yeah and on some ways you can say interpret that as oh they're they're in the business of saving the world but they're also a consumer-based product company and they also manufacture overseas yeah so it's like on one hand are they really doing what they're they're planning out out to do but on the other hand it's like you know if, if they're pumping their you know their profit into environmental issues exactly i mean it's blurry i mean it's the same thing with um with Orvis, I think that um, they do a lot of good, but on the other hand, uh, they really want you to buy that brand new fly rod. They want you to buy that Helios three, even though, you know, you already have a good one. <laughs> you already have a Helios one and two, and you also have all the brand new Sage rods uh, or right. the last ten variations of, of Sage. Um, so, you know, anybody who's I think in, um, in the fly fishing world too, I think that there is like this. Uh, monetary uh you know exclusivity that people find where they're like i can't keep up and um and i think that uh, i would say to them then or i would make a strong case for anybody in that situation well that you know there's always ebay there's always really cool reels you can buy on ebay uh of them are under a hundred dollars there's you know 150 years worth of old reels on ebay and a lot of them are junk but a lot of them are pretty good that you can catch fish with, and they're probably $25. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, though, I think the, the interesting thing that people don't realize is uh, like um, a Fluger medalist was the like bread and butter for uh, a reel. Yeah, great reel. You know, from salmon to steelhead to, you know, like tarpon, people caught big fish on medalists, and people yep. like they're garbage now. I mean, I, you know, in the summer of 2020, I was doing a lot of carp fishing and, and trying to use a, uh, uh, probably a $25 Fluger medalist or a Fluger gem. 
which is a earlier variation. Oh yeah. Does that have a drag on it? It doesn't. I think it. Oh, I think no drag at all. That have the like the same twist, like pressure on the on the the. the I think it's even more. Well, so the metalist um, actually has a drag system. Yeah, it has that little like that little. Uh, uh, well, it used to be ivory. The old the original reels were ivory, I think. Right. They eventually became plastic, but they yeah. were something else when they started. Yeah, they might have been. Um, some of them may have, may have been, but I, I don't know. But Fluger metalists probably not. Um, the early Hardy reels, like some really early like uh, Hardy perfects and stuff, do yeah. have like um, the tension or the drag tension on like a an early metalist. Early perfects, I think, may have been brass. There might be some examples of of uh, bone or ivory, but yeah. uh, while the handles are like on a like a really early perfect might be, um, and like people, they kind of if you look at like a the handle on a uh, on a, like a, a contemporary perfect or a uh, a bougle, there's they use like uh, it's like ivoryed. It looks like ivory, and it has like the oh, okay. lines in it, but it's um, one of those things where it's like oh, you know. Unfortunately, a, a, an elephant had to die for that a hundred years right. ago. It's not a good thing, but wow. it didn't fall apart like a plastic thing did. And bone, like bones, uh, like any kind of like you know, perloid or bones and things like that, can be kind of uh, you know have longevity opposed to plastics. Oh right, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. So what is the? So let's take it to the gear. So we got. Yeah. I mentioned the Ward Tonsfeld. It was episode. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's episode uh, two seventy six. He took us on a a guide to classic bamboo and reels and stuff. But and you also now tell me about that. So you we talked a while back. How's the podcast? Because you talked about maybe starting up a bamboo rod podcast. How's that looking? Um. Well, right now I'm just I'm stretched thin with a day job and a side job, and um, uh, yeah. currently I'm kind of at the point, and I've been. Uh, as a result of spending time in the Catskills last summer and my interest in bamboo, I've become involved with the Catskill Fly Fishing Museum and potentially seeing it as something that I could uh, work with them on where it's like, you know, I they pay for the production and I just get to be the one that interviews them and then oh, nice. they get the content uh, eventually. Um, I still would love to do it. I think that I just like I'm, I've, I've interviewed Dave Dozer and a friend of mine uh chuck Boolean, who makes um uh-huh. barrel rods here in denver and um but i don't really see like a reason to like potentially there's not enough of an incentive if i can't start putting it out there to start interviewing people um but it's not that i don't want to start interviewing people it's just that i feel like i have to get some sort of traction with like a, a source of of like whether it's an editor or someone who's yeah. going to own the content and provides the, the like pays for the, Support. the yeah. just basically like even if at the end of the day, I don't get paid for it, but I like, you know, uh, basically just, I'm the guy who hit like lines up the interviews and hits play and then, or hits record. Then ultimately, like I'd love to be able to pass it on because selfishly, like I, these are all people that I want to like want to listen or talk to. And like, I I've met Hoagie Carmichael who's sort of the, uh, wrote the how-to book on how to make bamboo fly rods, and and um, and his book took off. It, it was the right time, the right place, and uh, he is someone who a lot of people were inspired by by reading his book, or or by Everett Garrison, who he wrote the book on, uh-huh. uh, which is I think it's called the Master's Guide to Making Bamboo Fly Rods, uh, and it's a step-by-step book. So if anybody was interested in like 
where to start if they're like, oh, I, I met a guy who makes bamboo fly rods and I'd like to do that myself, but I don't know if he would te- he's willing to teach me. And it's like, well, you know, if you can get your hands on a copy of that book, it's a it's a place to start. It will answer some of your questions and how what goes into making it. Um, but I, I you know, a lot of people ask uh, like uh, just questions that like uh, Hoagie's been on uh, April Vokey's podcast and. Um, and he's talked about his relationship with Edward Garrison, and but people, some people may or may not know that he he also made bamboo rods uh, after Gar- Garrison passed before the book was published. Um, but I, one thing I'd love to I met him over the summer, and I, I was like, oh, I'd love to get the answer from him. Is like, you know, you wrote this book, and uh, you made a few fly rods with Everett. What made you want to make your own rods, and how are they different from? Ever Garrison's rods, you know, is it just that you, you were you making, you know, your very your version of the Garrison rod, or did you evolve your tapers and things like that? And the esoteric sort of like there's overall arching stories that people have and are interesting to hear from people, yeah. but uh, the nitty gritty stuff of like I know you interviewed um, um, what's his name from uh, Mike Clark or uh, Bob Clark. Uh, no, uh, from uh, let's see who, which one? What was the subject? Riverwatch fly bamboo fly rods. Oh yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. Bob. Um, yep, totally. Bob Clay. Yeah, Bob Clay. Yep, exactly. Yeah, Bob Clay. Like he answered some interesting questions, but like you know, some of the, and then I think he was on. A, he 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 he's friends with uh, with April from they're both from the same area of, of BC. And, um, but she answered, asked some of those questions and when she interviewed both of those people, but overall she was, um, asking questions about their stories and I'm like, no, no, wait, wait, I just want to know that one specific question. Exactly. And I like, uh, there was a documentary a couple of years ago or it it came out, it was produced, I think in 2016 and then it, it was, uh, released on Vimeo, which, um, it's called chasing the taper and it, it's a really well produced uh, movie and uh, it got me through the early days of the pandemic and um it was uh it's, it's a great sort of uh preliminary uh look into like the uh the people that are sort of the top maybe 10 f- bamboo fly rod makers predominantly east coast guys uh, but it features like pear brandon and mark Ariner and um a few other guys that are re- extremely well known and like dana gray and People whose rods are highly collectible, and people that work for Leonard and uh, are, are we're good friends with uh, Tom Maxwell, uh, who was one of the co-founders of or um, Tom Maxwell, which was one of the co-founders with uh, Tom Dorsey of, of Thomas and Thomas. Oh, okay. People that knew the people that that uh, Hiram Leonard trained uh, that they, they worked for Leonard, and and so. That's 150 years worth of fly fishing uh, gotcha. uh, rod technology uh, that people are talking about, or, or that they're that those people experienced. Um, Do you mostly love the the history? Is that what you really feed off of? Is like the history of not just bam- is bamboo your main thing, or is it like history of all fly fishing products? I think it's all of it. I I think that um, I think that like the thing that I would like to see doing with this podcast. Uh, the other thing is that, like, I think in terms of what we've been talking a little bit today about is that there's a lack of accessibility in terms of like people who are interested or like potentially interested in, in vintage fly fishing gear. They're like, 
well, I can never afford a bamboo rod. It's like, well, actually, like, you know, that 800 or $900, a $900, you know, brand new rod you bought, you can buy, like, it becomes a, you know, it's sort of like, you know, the diminishing returns or exponentially every year that a rod's been fished, the more likely it's going to be broken. Um, or most bamboo has a, like a limit to how long as a natural material, like how long it can be used. So, I mean, I think in some ways that like the, uh, the sort of the, the rods themselves and then the people that make them, uh, are the, like the people that kind of hold the interest of like the history or the, the, like the unwritten history of fly fishing. And that stuff's, I really find interesting. Today's show is presented by Angler's Coffee. With more than 40 years of experience in coffee, the Angler's Coffee team roasts a full range of coffees with one goal in mind, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. Responsibly sourced from farms using sustainable growing practices, you can rest easy knowing you're doing your part. Joe has it going over there. He's got some great partnerships. We actually had him on in a recent episode. If you check it out, Uh, A short little snippet episode, and Joe talks about what's new with them. Um, They ship this stuff out in 48 hours, so you're getting the freshest uh, roast delivered to your door. The Artist Series is really cool. Uh, An extra dollar goes to Casting for Recovery when you uh, buy one of those bags, and this is a super cool design. They got a brook trout design. You got to check it out. The dry dropper, so much stuff. Joe is like, whenever I talk to this guy, man, he's like, he's got all sorts of stuff going on. It's hard to keep up with him. And it's amazing because it's it's good stuff. So I hope you have a chance to check out Anglers. If you're at the show, um, if you're at any of the shows this year or depending on when this is you know coming out, a uh, good chance to connect with them there. Um, you can go right now to wetflyswing.com slash anglers and check out some great coffee right now. That's wetflyswing.com slash anglers. A-N-G-L-E-R-S. Check it out. Support this podcast and a great coffee company by clicking through that link. Okay, let's get back to the show. So you like the nitty gritty. You like the, and I do too. I mean, that's the struggle on me is that I'm not as, you know, you are a lot more knowledgeable on some of this stuff. So it's yeah. helpful. But l- let's try to, I- I'm curious because. It's interesting. Yeah. Or like the ties it back to uh, like the contemporary modern day is like, um, so a lot of people might be aware of the Golden Gate State uh, yep. fly casting uh, ponds that are in San Francisco or like in club and, and ponds. Yeah. The golden gate casting club, right? A lot of famous, uh, rod makers and, uh, R.L. Winston and E.C. Powell, uh, were people that were making rods in San Francisco and, uh, like hollow built rods sort of evolved in that area with competitive casting. But one thing that people like I didn't realize and, uh, what sort of makes me, that much more excited about my like understanding and learning of fly fishing history is that uh, the Granger Company, which was uh, founded in Colorado, is I, I was reading something in the, the Granger book. There's a book uh, that came out a number of years ago exclusively on Granger, and well, I didn't read all of the book. I was reading the sort of the preliminary building or like germinations of building the company, and uh, Granger was a competitive caster, and there's a a park that still exists today in Denver uh, that hosted like the national championships in the 1930s. Hmm. I ride my bike and walk, I like walk and, and, you know, drive my car by it every day. There's a myriad of people in Denver. There's people that fly fish in Denver that, ha- and I 
after reading that book, I was like, oh my God, I could go and cast a rod in the same part place that like, you know, Goodwin Granger cast a rod. That's pretty cool to me. Um, <laughs> that is awesome. Living history of, of um, uh, the sport is what uh, makes it more exciting to me. That's and, cool. Uh, That's really and there are also cool. ways in which I can participate in the sport uh, without actively just standing in a river, casting a rod, trying to catch fish. Yeah, no, it's, it's really cool. I mean, I think that's your, you're hitting on what makes you unique. You know, I mean, your, your products are unique and yeah. I'm curious. So out there, are there any, is there any other brands in the fly fishing space doing something similar to what you're doing? I mean, I know there's other people that are doing stuff, but it seems like you're really dowing into this really classic style vintage you got your own unique style are there others that are building their own products just like you are sewing it up and are do you talk to many of them i haven't talked to them but i i am um, there's a guy uh up in fort collins um it's called the merger i think uh but he makes wax cotton and leather bags for fishing oh yeah yeah like um i think there's a gap there's a gap between like i, I like these products and it's a very specific thing What's the site? The uh, the site everybody makes their own stuff and sells it. Uh, oh, Etsy. Yeah, Etsy, right? So it, it kind of gets to that. Like you got the one-off stuff, the Etsy stuff, which is a huge thing. I mean, I know people that are, you know, they're doing whatever. But but your thing really isn't an Etsy thing. I mean, you actually have, you know, a company. It's just. Yeah. I mean, they have a website. I mean, I think that, um, um, and he makes, I've seen some of his products in, like in some of the fly shops. And I'm like, oh, that's amazing. And oh, okay. We work. Uh, he has a, like a, a, a very limited, he makes like two or three bags and some accessories and not to say that I'm not doing the same thing in some ways, but I think what I, when I ultimately, when I started the company, uh, and why I chose from the get go to use more synthetic materials is that there's, um, you know, there's, there's uh, already sort of like a tried and true, uh, expectation currently within fishing. I don't want to be so far out there that I, I become like. You know, I, I'm only exclusively this. Right. Whereas, like, you know, the majority of people, they're like, oh, I like that, but it still needs to be waterproof on some level. Oh, right. Uh, or yeah, or they're water intimidated, intimidated by the idea that they'd have to reapply the wax after 20 years. Um, yeah. So that kind of thing. Now that, and then in terms of, like, the design, too, like, um I also felt like, um, well, I'd like that idea. Or like, if you look at a Vedavu bag, um, I was like, oh, I want to make something that is a little bit more in the middle of those two, where it's simple, it looks sort of classic, but it isn't as complicated or as technical as some other products. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, oftentimes I'll see like a Patagonia bag or a fish pond bag, and I'm like, I'm sure that's a great product, and it does the thing that it does for that person. But what I oftentimes look at design and uh, it's sort of like a function over form. It's like, how can I make uh, take away all of that stuff and make it even simpler or convey all the things that that, that bag does, but do it the way I could see it being uh, more simplified in my head. So, I mean, it's, you know, and it also just comes down to like, oh, I don't want to do that. I want to do this. Yeah. <laughs> or I'm not that I'm not that guy. I'm this guy. Or like, uh, yeah, you got your own stuff. Otherwise, you're just copying someone. Yeah. No, and it's cool. I think you gave me an idea. I think it'd be cool. You know, it sounds like you're going to eventually do some sort of a podcast, but I'd love if you could help us out here. And maybe you could even help with this thing. But give me a top list, like maybe a top 10 list of if you were to create this vintage uh, mini podcast, say 10 episodes, what are the first, tell me, like, what are the topics? If you had 10 episodes to do, 
What would only 10, you can only do 10. What would be the 10 episode topics? Ooh, oh, that'd be hard. Um, you got to have bamboo, right? You got to have yeah. one that's bamboo. Yeah. Well, I, there's one guy, uh, there's a few guys. I think I would choose Mark Ariner for my bamboo uh, because it, someone who's worked with Leonard and is currently making rods. There you go. And also extremely well respected. And I think that sort of like Pear Brandon is considered, uh, you know, like just based on cost or somewhat something might people say like, oh, the creme de la creme. Um, but in essence, like I would love to part of the reason why, like I was sort of sort of watched that Jason the Taper documentary and sort of reaffirmed why I wanted to interview all these guys is because, you know, an hour and a half documentary where there's 10 people being interviewed, they got like the premium stuff but like what i might find interesting or what might end up being in that podcast or in that in that um um that documentary isn't that's like you know 15 minutes if you boil it down of like you know one-liners uh that and i would rather sit down with someone from you know an hour to two hours or three hours yeah Um, so there'd be that i think there'd be um a real person yep uh, yeah. I think it would probably be, you know, someone who's an expert on Bougle or had some, you know, or, or uh, not Bougle, um, Bogdan, uh, either like, uh, I mean, I could even see um, something that I could talk to uh, uh, Hoagie Carmichael because he personally, oh, yeah. when he's written uh, uh, in, uh, about Hoagie Carmichael or, or Hoagie's written about Stanley Bogdan and, and uh-huh. stuff and uh, reels would be interesting to talk about. Um, yep. Mark Aaron, her son is in Mark, uh, sell. If anybody's looking for, you know, premium vintage fly fishing gear, Spinoza rods is their website. Oh yeah. And, Spinoza. Yeah. They, they have a ton of stuff, uh, fantastic vintage fly fishing gear. And, uh-huh. uh, it'd be interesting to talk to them or Mark and, um, uh, Jonas about Bogdan's. Um, uh-huh. maybe that'd be a, a one and a half. Um, I don't know. So it sounds like it would be hard and it would be, I mean, and when you say vintage, uh, tell me again, vintage is what the difference between classic and vintage. There is a difference, right? I don't know if I know, like, I mean, there is like a, even in like between like, uh, there's technical definitions between what's an antique and what's vintage. Oh, right, right, right. Like 50 years or something. Uh, something like that. Um, I, I think what Ward Tonsvelt said was he said the difference is classic is gear that, that's what he sells mostly is gear like people are using, you know, it's like, right. you're definitely, you're going to get it. And, and it could be a graphite rod from the eighties, but vintage, God, I'll have to remember on that episode, what he said, he did make a big distinction there. I mean, vintage is essentially older. Yeah. I'm not a collector. So I wouldn't say that I would, uh, I would say that maybe his definition of classic was anything that someone, it, regardless of when it was made, it's still considered to be, be- like really good or high quality and usable or usable. Yeah. Yes. That's it. Yeah, I mean, a vintage or like an antique bamboo fly rod. But then again, I mean, there's interesting things where it's like, um, you know, there are people that are like historians. There's uh, his name's like the gnome and he's done the museum at some of the fly fishing shows where people can see the evolution of, of bamboo fly rod technology and people that were contemporaries of Hiram Leonard and you know, early examples of this or this, the early examples of six-sided bamboo rods that were running in in parallel. Um, I don't know. The, um, there'd be, in, like, I don't know the names of those people, but I, I think there'd be interesting people that I would like to talk about of, like, what, 
what did it look like when you were a kid to go like fly fishing? I mean, exactly. You know, what was it the kind of like, you know, like Joan Wolf, like, you know, never mind your overall arching story. Do you remember the like, she's in her 90s, you know, what when you were a kid? what were you using or what was it like to use a gut leader? When did you stop using gut leaders? Because it was not any fun. Uh, those kind of things that are reaching about the sport. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. So, well, maybe what I'll do is, uh, maybe what I'll do is put together a little, we'll start with, uh, Mark Aaron or maybe Hoagie Carmichael. I'll put together an episode and then maybe we can get you on as like a co-host and you can come and, uh, and have a bunch of questions that, you know, better questions that I could ask and I'll let you lead the, uh, podcast. How's that sound? Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah. Then we can focus then as we go, if it works out of it, something that like, you know, is works for you or whatever, maybe we could think of a few more and, and it could be kind of, a kind of a vintage, you know, it's like a classic vintage mini podcast series. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and, and then that'll help kick you off to your, whatever your, your next, when you actually do your full podcast. Cause I really love the history. You know, I do. It's just that my struggle is like you, I mean, you're more knowledgeable on this. So I think it'd be helpful to have somebody help ask some better questions. I know, I know with Bob Clay, that episode, I struggled a little bit, you know what I mean? Because I didn't know the subject quite as well as some. So I knew I struggled a little bit, but you know, I did my best and that's kind of, you know, for me, I look at this, like sometimes I kick at, you know, sometimes I did an episode the other day with, uh, there's there's like, you know, I can tell like, uh, you know, someone like Bob Clay, it's like, yes, they explain sort of in some general form of how a rod is put together. Like a bamboo rod is, yeah. You know, the 10, the basics, explanation of how you put it together um but sometimes it's nice to like you know like i i listen to a podcast where it's just like uh there's sort of a straight man where it's a guy who uh it's called the fretboard journal magazine and they oh yeah yes it's a very nice anybody who's interested in vintage or like um guitars Guitars, yeah but they do a side podcast where it's they have an expert on and he just like fields questions that people have about how to repair and like modify tube amplifiers. Um, huh. But you know, That's I've cool. listened to it. I, I've dabbled in it, but I still can't tell you, you know, one side or the other from in a in a tube or in a tube amp. I'm like, I don't understand, but I still listen to the podcast. Like, I don't need that introduction of no explaining to me what a tube amplifier does. On some level, like anything. You know, the, I mean, I'm hoping that if I did something like a podcast, it's something that these are just weirdly in, interesting people. Like, I, I think that some people, they might find me fascinating. Um, or, I, but I find these people fascinating or like it's fascinating that anybody can make a living or some someone's of a living making rods. I mean, I think that, yeah, uh, that's commendable. And, and so I know getting sort of into their heads about what they do would be, I find, find uh inspiring or interesting and, and enriching for the sport so you know i don't necessarily feel like it's the kind of thing where like i like i i don't want it to be the, like oh how do you make a rod every time or like explain no. you how to make a rod that kind of thing yeah yeah, yeah. No, it's got to be interesting i think it's got to be yeah obviously it's got to be <laughs> you have zero interest in ever owning a bamboo fly rod or you know making a, a bamboo fly rod it's just people that are talking about fishing. Like I, as an example, like I talked to Mark over the summer and I had a question about an old pain rod. I've saw out of, uh, like a antique swap meet or flea market. And, uh, I was like, Oh, should have I bought it? You know, I talked to him about that for about 10 minutes and then 
quickly he devolved and or evolved into talking about salmon fishing because he was excited about his trip coming up in October. And the next 30 minutes were him telling stories about, about salmon fishing, which, yeah, uh, which is you amazing. Know, to, to some people would, you know, that's, that's all I, all they'd care. Atlantic salmon, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 No, I know I, that's a bucket list fish for, I think a lot of people for sure. Well, the cool thing too is like with that is like I was listening to him about it and he doesn't have a lot of disposable income like most most people in the fly fishing industry or like you know you could say like um you know people have people have the idea where it's like in order to go um salmon fishing I or Atlantic salmon fishing and have to spend 10 grand or 20 grand to go to Scotland and it's like yep. well actually like our conversation was like a basically a DIY version of how to go Atlantic salmon fishing and it's more accessible than people think. So, yeah, you down on the East Coast. People have this idea of like it being, you know, like very tweety or like very inaccessible. And but it's much in the same way that like you know you can go steelheading. It's just that it's it's a different system. Like you have to draw, like you have to you know apply for lotteries with like the uh, provincial government in in Canada to or like provincial. Uh, east coast governments to get you know a certain number of days on a particular river and it might be only this stretch but then if you want to spend 10 grand you can jump to the front of the line because you can go to some private club and do it there yeah you know so yeah it's interesting yeah nice well i think i'm gonna have to hold hold you on that and maybe if i can get <laughs> one of these vintage we'll, we'll get you back on it how's, how's that sound you want to do that if we can put it together sure yeah i'd love to do something like that um yeah okay Cool. That'd be fun. We recently did an episode with um, Tom uh, Tom McCoy, but we had uh, the TU, the Art Flick TU, uh, Michael, Michael, who I've been talking to quite a bit. He's become a friend of mine, and and he yeah. co-hosted with me and asked some good questions uh, about the the you know Long Island, right? Which is an right. area I don't know very well, but um, yeah. he described it, and it's pretty cool. There's there's a lot of that northeast part of the country. Obviously, has tons of history. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I don't know. Have you talked to um? I know it was brought up in some of the podcasts about the daddies. You should talk to um Joe Fox. He's oh he's, yeah, 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 yeah. No, we're we're going to be definitely getting Joe on hopefully soon. I mean, uh, that's that's the goal for sure. If you want to get into like the minutia of like Catskill fly, I do, I do. That's been a number one priority. Technology and yeah, and all of that stuff. He's he's a extremely large or dearth of information. I've been waiting just to get Joe on and that's, yeah. that's kind of the, been the reason, but yeah, we'll, we'll get, yeah. I love to hear the Catskill story. He's a busy man. He's a, once you get him on the phone though, he's fun to talk to. Okay. Well, give me a, as we take it out of here, give us your five, you mentioned a couple podcasts, but right now what you're listening to, not your uh, five favorites, but the last five podcasts you've listened to. Oh man, I'm going to have to look it up. Yeah. Let's check it out. Let's, let's hear it. Um, this is my Dave Jackson. Uh, Dave Jackson's a podcaster. He this is his thing. He does sometimes is all right. Is your top five? Your last five. Um, so the one I was talking about with the vintage tube amplifiers is called "The Truth About Vintage Amps" with Skip okay. Simmons. Let's see. Uh, how did this get made? Oh, cool. Which is about, like terrible movies. So it's all about terrible movies and how they got made. They talk about like you know. Sometimes it's just like awesomely bad movies where like, you know, Roadhouse is a ridiculous movie, but they like, oh, yeah. like, you know, like Patrick Swayze's pants couldn't have gotten any 
poofy or like they're just ridiculous pants. Um, just, just it's just really funny about uh, where they talk about how like because like a lot of times like Roadhouse or at the end of it they'll like you're like is this movie worth watching even though it's right. terrible and it's like absolutely it's an yeah. awesomely bad movie but it's it's you go. you've got to watch it or it's like yeah you know this you know made for TV Hallmark Christmas movie is just unwatchable um, but it's all pretty great. And uh, <laughs> so I listened to that. Um, what are the other ones? Um, listen to another interview-based podcast. Not unlike what I would want to do. It's called Luthier on Luthier uh-huh. by the Prep Board Journal as well. But it's um, Michael Bashkin is a Fort Collins-based uh, guitar maker. Uh, mm-hmm. He interviews other guitar makers. So in some ways, that was the model I had um, oh, right. for the, um, the idea of yep. interviewing rod makers. And then, uh, have you heard of Dead Eyes? Uh, Dead Eyes? Yeah. I think I have. What's that about? Um, it's this guy. He's a comedian. And um, he, uh, the, the 90s, in like 1999, he got um, cast in Band of Brothers. Huh. And then right before, he, like the day before he was, or like on his way to like shoot it, or like his scene, he got fired, and supposedly it's because his like agent told him it was because Tom Hanks told them that he had dead eyes. Oh, really? Sort of this like deep dive, multi-season e- episode thing where he's interviewed mm-hmm. other people that were like, you know, the people that were on the show, or you know, like the people that he could have been exchanging lines with, or that like sort of this sort of like amazing what if of like if if how would my life be if only i had gotten cat actually in band of brothers band of brothers and then like the last episode he had zach braff on and and then like adam scott and there were both people that interviewed or went to like the casting call for it but didn't get hired uh or didn't yeah. even make it through the first round or like seth rogan got passed it's amazing uh-huh. how the people that got like interviewed for it or went to the casting for it or so it's all about that movie, essentially, and the people. That's mini series, yeah. And wow. So eventually, it's like, uh, it, like I think he's. Uh, they alluded for the next episode, he's going to talk to uh, one of um, Tom Hanks' sons. Just like you know, meeting uh, like the snowball of like meeting other people and the podcast getting tracked, uh huh, stuff like that. So that's great. And let me see. Yeah, what do you got? You got one more for us? Yeah. These are good. You got a lot of uh, music movies, so it sounds like you're really into that. That's a, a big part of what you love. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just interesting conversations. Prior to like really going deep into fly fishing, I was for a while contemplating being like a luthier and guitar maker. And uh, wow. at the same time, I was like, oh, I'm fishing a lot. I'm probably better. Like, I can't play the guitar really. Don't know that many musicians. It's probably maybe a little bit more logical for me to become a. Um, make bags and work in the fly fish retreat. Yeah, that's right. Not that I still <laughs> don't like occasionally like, uh, contemplate the idea of making guitars and do it once in a while. But the other one that I like that I've been listening to is, um, Paul Shear has another podcast, uh, called unspooled. And the first season he went through with his co-host, uh, Amy Nicholson, they did the entire AFI list, uh, AFI one, top 100 movies of all time. Oh, wow. Of all time. It took them a couple of years to do that, which is really interesting. 
So they just did their review, or what, yeah. how'd they do it? They reviewed the movies. Well, they like watch the movie and then they talk about it. And, and well, she, Amy Nicholson yeah. is a uh, a movie critic, so they look through oh. lens, and then also like, you know, is yeah. it just like well acted, or just then then Paul Shearer is like talking about movies all the time. What was the number one? Do you remember what the top movie was? Well, the first I think on the top list it's uh, Citizen Kane. But then the cool thing now that they do is they they do like these little mini series, like they did they did like a Halloween. Like horror every year. And then oh, yeah. The, Friday the 13th. Yeah. Or like, you know, is it really good? Or is it all all that they did like uh, Freddy Krueger? And- yeah, Freddy Krueger. <laughs> That's almost a joke. That was scary when I was a kid, but it's a kind of a joke thing, really, isn't it? I mean, I don't know. It was one of those things where I think it was like, the, if you watch the original one, uh, I haven't watched it. I, it's too scary yeah. for me, I think. Oh, it's still too scary? I don't know. I, I have. I remember seeing like the end, and I was like, "Nah." Or like as a kid, I was like, "No, I can't do that too much." But um, it's interesting to like. I don't feel like I have to watch every movie. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Awesome. Well, thanks for all the time. Been good catching up with you, and glad to hear you're still you're still going strong. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Thanks, Ross. Okay. All right. I'll talk to you later. All right. We'll see you later. See ya. All right. Bye. Bye. So there you go. You want to find all the show notes, all links, and everything else we covered today, head over to wetflyswing.com slash 291. 291 will get you the good stuff. You can also head over to wetflyswing.com slash fly shop to support a local fly shop right now. Uh, I would love to hear who your local fly shop is. If you get a chance, send me a DM message, whatever, on social media, wetflyswing, and just say, hey, enjoying the show. Uh, you know, whatever you want to, and let me know who your fly shop is. I'd love to give a shout out to a local fly shop. We're always trying to do that uh, where we can. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to leave it at that for today. Um, I appreciate you for supporting the show. And this is uh, another bonus episode where we're, we're, this thing's coming out when it came out was a bonus. Uh, this is like extra value. I think we might have had like four episodes dropped this week. And, uh, and I know uh, three of them were big full-length episodes so I'm trying to over deliver for you if you have a show topic at any time you can send me an email at dave at wetflyswig.com uh, do that right now stop right now if you can dave d-a-v-e at wetflyswing.com super easy to do and i appreciate it because i know that you are listening and when i hear that people are listening it helps me uh do even more and uh, and you can even tell me if you have a content idea or a guest, um, anything you want. Just want to hear from you. All right. It's cold in here, so I'm ready to get out here and get to some warmth of a nice bed. Bedtime. Here we go. Check in. See you on the river. See you online. See you when I see you. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. 